SQL Down Under is a podcast for professionals working in the SQL Server community. SQL Server is a trademark of Microsoft Corporation. Opinions expressed during the podcast are individual opinions and may not reflect the opinions of SQL Down Under or of Microsoft Corporation. Introducing show number 23 with guest James Lutke-Halter. Our guest today is James Lutke-Holder, who's been in the database arena well over a decade, and his bio mentions that any other clues would reveal his true age. While anything database-related interests him, his passion lies with SQL Server, working with it consistently since version 4.2. James owns a small, specialised data-centric consulting company in the US, and in his free time he catalogues various phonetic pronunciations of Lutke-Holder, where the count is currently up to 2,082 distinct variations. Welcome, James. Thanks for having me, Greg. <laughs> That's great. Listen, tell us the story about uh, about the surname and uh, and how you come to have here so many variations. It is a unique name. Uh, there are actually only four in the United States: uh, myself, my wife, my mother, and my brother. And it is spelled L-U-E-T-K-E-H-O-E-L-T-E-R. And people tend to look at it in panic. <laughs> um, and even within our family, and I'll, we, I have relatives in Canada and then, of course, relatives in Germany, but if they have that last name, they're related to me somehow. Yeah. We don't even have consistency amongst ourselves. I say Letkehalter because it's nice and rolls up the tongue. My brother says Litkehalter, and my mother says the more German name, the German-sounding name, which I'm not going to attempt. Yeah. Uh, but I have literally heard, yes, um, and I literally have a notebook where I write down. I just got a new one actually this week. I'm um, teaching in uh, Atlanta, Georgia, and I, someone someone came up with a completely new variation. So actually, that's going to go up to 2083. <laughs> that's great. But listen, the uh, when did I see you last? I think TechEd was it? You were a TechEd. Yeah, TechEd, yeah. Yeah, TechEd in Orlando. Yeah, so you've been down in the warm weather for a while. I don't know. Um, I go, I go in and out. Yeah, and it, well, actually, yeah. There's not everything's kind of warm right now, <laughs> mm. but yeah, kind of all over the place. Um, I had, uh, I had been in uh, Denmark for a conference there, and that was actually quite chilly, and yeah. and in March or so. Um, lots of rain, and and I did happen to um, the very first day, and I was the first presenter of the first day, and I fell down a flight of stairs, oh, right. and, and yeah, and spent the rest. This was a party heavy conference, and I spent the rest of it basically lying on a couch trying not to move. Mm. Um, luckily, you know, yeah, conferences like PASS don't have those problems or yeah. you have elevators at least or something yes, like that indeed. yeah in fact we're looking forward to that of course that's coming up in september you'll be there as well 
Yes, yes. Excellent. And I'm actually um, giving kind of a non-sequel uh, session. I'm actually going to be talking about every everything that's non-sequel that a DBA needs to know something about. Mm. A little bit of application development, a little bit of hardware. Um, find far too many people out there that are just a little too focused. And, you know, when someone else starts talking, the it's the deer in the headlights type of look yeah. they don't want to know. In uh, fact, I, I really quite I, liked Peter Ward uh, has a session called Engineering 101 for the DBA as well. And yes. I think that's great. Yes. That's a good one. Yes, I've yes I've actually yes I've seen seen him do that one. Um, this is yeah this is something similar, although it's going to well I'm going to try and cover as much as possible. So, like most of my presentations, it will either be very popular or I'll have two people there. People either <laughs> like me or they absolutely hate me. So one of the two. Outstanding. Well, listen, like I do with most guests, I get you briefly at first just to tell us how you came to get involved with SQL Server at all. Um, well, I started in school uh, basically in a mathematics background, and then I got involved in philosophy. So I kind of have the database categorization type of mind. The whole concept of normalization to me seems obvious. Nobody seemed to have, you know, to point out the, the normalization rules. I'm like, yeah, duh. Um so I started out that way, and I got a job initially just doing just doing help desk support, just getting started. And I got thrown onto a team that had to support anything. And we all had to pick a specialty. And when it came to databases, the entire team just pointed at me. I didn't even get a choice. So it started dealing with any type of database that was out there, um, DBase or whatever. And I had to learn a lot of different platforms a lot, very, 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 very quickly. And I loved it. And it's just, um, it's the way I think, the way I see the world. And, uh, and, and unfortunately, I see a lot of things done poorly with it. So I'm out to change them. I'm out to sort of change the world. Yes, it's unrealistic, but you got to have a goal. That's great. Well, James, the session that we're talking about today is about disaster recovery, and I gather you've just been producing a book uh, in that direction. Yes, I have, and it should have been out already, um, partially due to my getting things done as much as possible. Um, running your own business and trying to write a book is, not, is a challenging thing to do. Yes. Uh, plus, Microsoft now officially announced SQL Server 2008. Mm. So I have to be sure that I cover what I can out of that uh, before we actually get it produced. Yeah, so in fact, was, it's coming. The SQL CLR book I've just been uh, finishing off as well. The uh, we, We've also done the same thing. In fact, I've uh, looked at what's different in 2008 so far and uh, yeah, putting some minor changes in there for that. So. Yeah, that's yeah, that, and that was a nice curveball that we got from Microsoft. <laughs> by the way, that's by good. the way, here's an inversion. Well, listen, what's actually it's really topical that uh, we're talking about disaster recovery because I must admit I've been doing disaster recovery planning for some organisations in Canberra in the last week or so, 
And I suppose maybe we should start with a definition of what, what you think disaster recovery is. Well, I'm a bit of a, um, I guess oddball is the best way to put it. So I've always got a little bit of a different take on everything. Mm-hmm. And the way I see disaster recovery, it's partially you know, the backup recovery, which is what normally people think of, or um, simply having a you know a data you know backup data center somewhere. But I I include some high availability techniques in it, and process techniques, and all sorts of things. Um, it's really hopefully there is no disaster recovery. In the best case scenario, it never happens. Uh, but it is a distinct plan, and it's got to include um, a, a definite distinction that I see, a difference between what you do in the response of a disaster and what you do to mitigate that disaster, to prevent it from happening. And the latter is usually separated off as high availability. And high availability is often discussed of just, you know, in terms of, performance or or making sure you've got um, 100% uptime, to me, it's more of a disaster recovery mechanism, or so it should be or it can be. So you're arguing that the one of the reasons that we look for high availability is to mitigate the chance of having a disaster. Absolutely. And then the and response to the disaster is a separate part of the plan. It's a separate part. They're distinct operate. Yeah, they're distinct things to think about. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you might conclude definitely. You're including both of them. I mean, you have to have a response plan. Response plan is required. Mitigation is a good idea if you can afford it or find a you know a good a decent way to do it. Yeah. Uh, but response is required. You have to have some sort of response, uh, and not just you know, having a backup and recovery plan, not just having a backup and recovery plan written down, having practiced, uh, um, checking backups to make sure they're good. I don't know how many times I've run into it where, you know, once you last backup, you know, give me your last full backup and they give me a tape and the tape's been corrupted. Yeah. Uh, that's a very, as a, you know, working as a consultant, it's a very, very uncomfortable situation to be in. <laughs> I had a, very. a colleague... Uh, who loves three-letter acronyms, and he always described these as uh, CLMs. It was a career-limiting move. <laughs> you know, I, was, I was getting this wrong. The, in fact, it does intrigue me that one of the, the things I've seen is I've seen people have amazing degrees of confidence in hardware, and the amount of time I've spent over the years involved in hardware support and things like that yeah, I, I think that's just so misplaced. Um, the, uh, in fact, in, even in the case of you mentioned things like tape drives, even on very, very large tape drives, I think one of the scariest things I remember ever seeing is I saw one that had the erase head permanently stuck on. And what would happen is as it would write the tape, it would erase the data, it would write the new data, and then it would do the read after write to make sure it was written properly. It would get to the end, and then as it rewound, it would erase the entire tape. <laughs> and without the human process of actually validating it at any point. So, yeah. yes. Oh, Th- things like that are just 
They do happen, and they're very scary. Yes, and definitely, I I I think that's a a great point. Um, that hardware is sort of seen as this is how we deal with disaster or mitigating it, and it, a, a very high reliance on it. And um, as I'm going to talk about shortly, I mean that's to me that's one of the fewer disaster scenarios that you're going to deal with mm. um, is hardware. And th- there's there's very few options for protecting against it. But yes, the whole idea, yeah, if anybody checking the hardware or checking the tapes, did the tapes make yeah. it? Or it's supposed to be, it's a tape library and it's an auto, auto feeder and it's striping across there. Yeah. Well, okay, that scares me. What if I lose one? That's right. Um, I would be checking it often. Yeah. yeah. And look, in fact, even in that case, the other thing I find very commonly is that come the point of disaster, the only tape drive on the planet that would have read that tape was the one that just died. Uh, you know, all... <laughs> yes. That's, the, well, yeah, if, if that, you know, if the, if the, the one that you needed was available, of course, that would just be, um, well, I mean, that would be some, we're living in some kind of utopia that just never happens. You're yeah. right. It's always, always the worst situation that you can be in. And which is actually one of the mantras that I preach whenever I go to a client is plan for the worst. Mm-hmm. And I have them do what they think are somewhat silly things, but you plan for extremes. Um, if you're designing something, if it's starting off at, you know, 10 gig, Imagine that it's going to go to 10 petabytes within three years. Um, You know, and the same thing with disaster recovery. Assume the worst. You know, don't don't assume that, no, I live in a place that's relatively free of, you know, Mm -hmm. environment disasters. I'm not going to be facing, um, heaven forbid, a Katrina-type incident Mm -hmm. where the entire town was flooded or something like that. I... It will happen. The more confident you and the more arrogant you are about it not happening, it just seems, yeah, cosmically it seems to work out. It will. Yeah. I was was reading very sadly about a company uh, based in the Twin Towers who had their DR site in the other tower. Yes. Yeah, just yes. unbelievable, you know. The but yes. listen, cost justification, I suppose, is the the next main issue. I mean, you started to mention cost before. What's what's your thinking in the areas of costs, and and how do we discuss this with management? What what are the issues? This is this is the biggest problem because disaster recovery is something that cannot be just cost justified because in a best case scenario you're never going to have to implement that plan. So how do you argue to management that we need to spend this amount of money to protect against these types of problems? Now, you can posit all sorts of scenarios saying if we did this, we'd lose this much money, but then you start playing the role of an actuarian where you're sort of, you know, sort of... uh, coming to a point of, well, we can afford to spend this, like like car manufacturers will have that, where there will be some safety defect, and someone will come up and say, well, we can afford to pay out the lawsuits if these, you know, if this is a percentage of cars that die. 
yeah. rather than having the recall. And that's kind of a scary way of thinking. Um, it, it, is it, is, it is reality, though. And, and look, it, it's an interesting point you make there because I see so many situations where people don't realize that all these, all these things are trade-offs. The, uh, you know, if I look at uh, things like aircraft, I mean, I fly so much, you know, but, you know, the reality is, I mean, everybody thinks, you know, you know, that every plane they get on is pretty much working perfectly every time they get on it. But, you know, the, the reality is n no plane that's been used for any length of time has everything working. And, Correct. you know, they're endlessly making a decision that says, you know, here's here's what works, here's what doesn't work. You know, at what point do we say, no, it doesn't go? You know, that's but, but there is no concept of it. It actually all just works. Correct. Yeah. And, 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 and it's the same, I think, the same sort of thing, thing can fall into the disaster recovery planning, where it, instead of disaster recovery planning, you end up doing this negotiation that is basically, oh, well, how much can we afford to lose? Well, that's part of it, but you don't, you don't discuss that with the people that spend the money. In fact, disaster recovery is one of those, is a, it becomes an acronym that I really like to avoid. Anything D-R-H-A-B-C, I call them buzzernyms because they're sort of like buzzwords where executives will jump on them. And if you say D-R, we need to have a D-R plan. The first thing that's going to go through the CFO's head is, Oh no, that means a geolocated sand that's going to cost us millions and millions of dollars. And it doesn't need to. Um, that's another, uh, that's another angle that we as DBAs really need to lever, you know, sort of impress upon people is that it doesn't have to be expensive. Mm. There are little things can, that, that can be done. A simple thing, uh, your example was the tape. Is somebody checking the tapes just once a week? That's it, or just once, you know, just check them every once in a while. It's a process. It's an ongoing job responsibility. Yeah. And it's not seen that way. It's sort of we've got a DR plan. Well, good for you. Okay, did, who's in charge of doing this on a daily basis? Mm -hmm. Daily basis? There's it's not a daily basis thing. And, and no, it has to be. Otherwise, you will invariably run into that that piece on the airplane that will cause it to fail, or yeah. the piece on the car that's going to cause it to crash, or the tape that's corrupt. It, it's uh, going to happen. That leads us into the different scenarios of disasters. Then, so what sort of categories of things do you uh, what categories do you put things into in terms of disasters? Well, th this is another sort of area where I kind of get odd, um, and deliberately odd. Um, I go against basically anything that you'd see in Microsoft literature and a lot of literature, and I do so for a reason. Uh, there, it turns out that the response and the mitigation approaches are very similar with each category. So. I, the very first one that I deal with is environment. Mm -hmm. Environment can be as simple as as simple as uh, a loss of power, 
the data center overheats. Um, actually, once remember a data center that was basically a closet, and it got so hot that they had to open. There would be there would be a consultant that would open a window, and then another internal employee would shut the window, and it was a constant game. Yeah. But even in the you know even in winter in Wisconsin where I'm from and we from and we will get you know plenty of snow. They'd still open the window because if they didn't, those servers would just continually reboot. Yeah. It could be something that simple. Or you could go as far as the Katrina type event yeah. um, or the Twin Towers. It, it can be anything where the environment has changed, changed is such that it's going to cause either the database to fail or the perception of failure. Yeah, um, and that that's actually another little nuance that I did, didn't mention. There's, it doesn't matter to the users or to the managers, to the CEO, if the system's really up and running, but they can't get to it, or they don't care about that. It's can they use it? Yeah. Um, so that's a big part of it as well. Uh, but that's the very first one. Is yeah. Inspiring. In fact, that's that's a good point that I often see high availability discussed. But, you know, no definition of what available means. And in general, I see a lot of people saying, oh, yeah, but the system was up. But you're quite right. Unless the users are able to use it pretty much as they normally would use it, then it's not really available. No, it should be not up. Instead of walking through an IT department and, and seeing a chart on some managers right in front of their door showing the uptime for a given system. Well, okay, that's your part of the system, but what about the network? What about the application? What about all these other things? It's the users that determine that. And it's the same thing ultimately with disaster recovery. The users are going to determine what plan. They should determine what plan, not the DBA. Um, what is? What are the requirements that you need to meet? Um, but, that, yeah, that's... Unfortunately, yeah, the the perception of up the difference between uptime and perception of uptime is kind of missed in our in our segment of the industry yeah. in in IT. And I'd like to see more of a move back to that. Yeah. Well, and I will because I'll just can keep complaining about it until people tell me to <laughs> stop talking. Well, that's environment. I mean, we've mentioned hardware, and I mean there there are enormous numbers of possible hardware-related failures. Um, and I suppose then the media itself? Um, media would be, uh, yes, yeah, so I have hardware as a category. Um, media would be just as, you know, you described with the tape. Mm. It's at some sort of damage or, well, that was... That was actually more of a, you know, somebody making a mistake. But it, it, media is disk drives, tape drives, they're mag magnetic media. They're, they're actually quite fragile. It's not solid-state storage. And until we get to a point where that's an affordable option, they, it's, it takes nothing. Um, I once, once had... <laughs> One of my one of my employees at the place that he used to work, it, it was a manufacturing company, and they had a 
pretty good server room, and they'd have sort they had sort of like a little hallway in the room. The left side would be all PC-based servers, and then they had AS400s on the other, and then they had sort of a cabinet with all the tape drives. Well, somebody came in with one of the guys that sort of knew somebody in IT said, hey, you check out this new electromagnetic that we got to clean up the, the manufacturing floor, you know, the floor because mm. it's metal shavings, and that's how they do it. And he walked in and turns the thing on, and like throws a bunch of nails in front of him and then lifts it up and picks up all the nails and it picked them up from you know way across yeah. the room but he pointed it directly at the the uh, tape cabinet luckily mm. none of the disk drives were destroyed but every tape was yeah. damaged and that that uh, company you know every day would sweat you know until they get back to their um, their month storage system yeah. of, or their month, you know, monthly backup. Yeah. So I mean, that's actually um, the the media coming to grief. The uh, I must admit, one of the ones that intrigues me. Uh, I was reading some reports recently about even things like low cost CDR media, and that maybe it doesn't have the life that we suspected it might. Uh, and I suppose that's another thing that is a little chilling sometimes is that even things that we've put off to what we would consider to be permanent storage uh, or archival, of course, it's the, you know, periodically checking whether the archival media is even uh, really readable still. Oh, sure, absolutely. And DVDs are a great example. I don't know how many that I've, got within my house where I've loaned it to somebody and it comes back and there's a huge physical scratch yeah. down the middle of it. That That's not, it'll play sort of, but it'll jump and skip and you'll go nuts mm. watching it. You know, that, yeah, the, the idea that there's, that there is, that there is, you know, media that's sort of protected or we don't have to worry about it is a very, a very big mistake I see people make. Now, what intrigued me with the CDR media is that they were discussing that some of the early CDR media in particular, um, and particularly the low-cost ones, may have a life as short as, you know, eight to ten years, um, you know, of actually being readable, which is, sure. uh, uh, you know, again, we tend to check them pretty early on, but a lot of people then store them away and just presume, you know, they're readable long-term. Yes. Yes, that that eventually yes sort of erode away. <laughs> yeah, the headers will erode away, and yeah, they're they're, Look, they're no longer valid. One of the biggest things that we used to see, though, and I think I gather that's the next area that you categorise, of course, is something failing in the process. Uh, I I find as soon as you have any complicated, the more complicated the process is for performing backups and things like that and the more pieces of media involved and so on and so on you know the obviously the the bigger the chance that the process will fall down um we used to regularly check media from clients and i lost count of the number of times people would have three or four pieces of media and what they would send you was two of tuesdays one of wednesdays you know and so on but they thought it was a, a media set sure 
Sure, and actually, and and I will. Uh, I I actually put a and again. This is my own little odd spin on process. That's definitely an issue. Um, and, and the more complicated, you know, simplicity is is the key, and it doesn't have to be complicated. Mm. And the stripe set thing is a is a pro is definitely a problem. And I think even SQL Server almost pushes you behind the back to do it. Yeah. <laughs> to accidentally yeah, do it. I must I, I have a real personal preference wherever possible to have everything fit on a single piece of media because uh you know, invariably as soon as multiple pieces of media are involved people get things wrong. And I typically don't like to assume that the person doing it will uh, get anything much more than what day it currently is right. Um, you know, and even that they won't get right, let alone, uh, you know, something more complicated. That, that's, that's a great point. And I, I have a similar rule um, whenever I'm either, whether it's backup or it's the initial design, I never size any file larger than my ability to transport it mm. individually. So it's got to fit on one tape. So if we have to do file by file backup, okay. But yeah, none of this, you know, I'm going to have a 32 terabyte file, which I think is the, the biggest that SQL Server 2005 supports. Um, to me, that seems insane because I can, uh, I can no longer move it from one point to another. Yeah. Um, it's the same, and the same goes for backups. They have to be portable. There, there's, that's, that's a key. That's a big, big key. If you, if they're not portable and if they stay on one site, uh, well, okay, environment's a problem and media's a problem. Uh, there's all sorts of just, Things that keep me up at night. If, yeah. If I when I think about that kind of thing, um, I must admit I, I literally do. I also have a major preference wherever possible for write once media rather than rewritable media. At, you know, at the lower end. Uh, you know, for example, I mean, I see people with rewritable, you know, DVDs, and I see people with you know, DVDRs and plus Rs, and you know, just write once and. You know, they seem very proud of themselves that they get to reuse the same piece of media again and again and again. And I, and I just sort of look and think, you know, you've got to be kidding. I mean, at the point that I have to recover something, you know, having, having a, a stream of one of them from every, or one or more of them from every day backwards, you know, in, increases my chance of having something usable dramatically, um, compared to, you know, endlessly reusing the same piece of media and only having a handful of, pieces of media to choose from. Yeah, it, 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 exactly. And the, and another, that kind of segues into a, another point, another one of my mantras is the longer any single process takes, the more likely it is to fail. And all you have to do is look at a big, big project. You know, the, the data warehousing projects like pre-2000, most of them fail because people would want to data warehouse their entire company rather than take it in bits and pieces. So it would be yeah. these huge projects, and the, the majority of them would fail. 
And it's the same thing with a simple backup. As long as it takes for that backup to run, the more likely it is that there's a problem. So, you know, the idea of going directly to tape or directly to media or rewriting over the same media, that's, there's even, that's a, that would be increasing the, you know, the, the time just a little bit as it goes and says, okay, I'm overwriting it. But that increases the chance of it failing, plus it's, that media is going to wear out mm. eventually. You treat the user as the last category in the different scenarios, and that's this is uh, you're thinking either maliciously uh, a user doing something, or you're thinking in terms of a user running something when they shouldn't, or both. Well, actually, process and user are kind of similar to me. Uh, a process processor are, you know, definitely we've got in the 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 things that we've talked about where just the the, the the disaster recovery process itself is too complex or mm. um, the, the environment in which you have to implement it is just too complex. But I also include like process, a process error would be either a planned or an automated process that fails. Example of a process, what I would consider a process error is the classic scenario of delete from table and you forget the where clause. Yeah. And you delete everything. And that's something where there are new tools in 2005 that make that make recovering from that a lot easier than having to run and try and find the server and unplug it. And in these days you know, this we could this could be me as a consultant, thousands of miles away with a client VPN, you know, VPNed in, and accidentally doing that, and I can't call somebody to run and run and fix that. Yeah. The same thing with an automated process. There's an automated, um, maybe an index, you know, a re-index or something, and something happens during the re-index with the disk, and it damages something there are some tools that we have there are new tools um, that we could use the user ones are unplanned and yes it could be malicious somebody maliciously damaging it but the scenario that I have in mind is more of the the, the order entry person accidentally going oh, whoops I just deleted our biggest customer or mm. oh I just deleted uh, an important order and you ask them, well, what order did you, you know, what was the order? When did you do it? Well, I don't really remember. That's a common thing that I run into where somebody makes a mistake and either they don't fess up to it or they don't really realize what they did. And previously what we would have to do is restore the entire database and try and figure out what's going on. Or if they could lose, if they were allowed to lose data, restore to the point in time of the failure. And we've got new tools to deal with that as well. Actually, that's and a really interesting point, is that in many situations when you go to recover something that's occurred, unlike many real-world situations where the people around you will be there trying to help you recover it. One of the problems that you do run into is the 
you know, the people who are probably responsible in many cases are not prepared to tell you what they actually did. And in fact, they'll quite often tell you something very different to what they did. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And you have the, and, and the invariable, the one that I love, the invariable pressure of the IT manager or the CEO standing behind me as I'm working. Mm. Uh, and what I have, a, I have, well, a habit, and I think it's a good habit that infuriates them as well, uh, is to sit down calmly and I pull out a piece, like a pad of paper and a pen, and I write down, okay, first I'm going to do this, then I'm going to do that, then I'm going to do this, to just to be very clear about what I'm doing rather than just doing it in a gunshot approach. Mm. And because that's taking time, they, you know, they freak out, but I've done the gunshot approach and I've made mistakes and that have cost even more time. Yeah. And it's not like one, you know, there's, there's, and there's interesting things too about, you know, I want to make sure that I don't lose any data. Well, because there can be situations where what you do causes you to lose data. Yes. And that's, that's so critical. I, I always tell the guys I, I work with, um, you know, that are doing this sort of work, you know, when you go in the door, the, the number one rule is you do no further harm. <laughs> you, know, yes. you you must not do something that, that makes the situation worse. And that in many situations, that's right, that, that first action you take might remove the possibilities that you had down the track to to recover something because you didn't realize you could. And I know from personal experience, I've done it. Yeah. <laughs> I've done it accidentally and went, oh, no, and I just... Oh, I just lost uh, half an hour's worth of data. Yeah. Um, you know, th this idea of 100% uptime, that's a great idea, but for a lot of companies, if you had to choose between being down for 20 minutes because of having a problem or losing 20 minutes of data but still being up, yeah, that could be critical for like an online retailer um, that's one of the big ones that sells books and lots of things. Huge. They're going to say they don't want to lose data because they're not only losing those orders, they're losing those customers for good. Yeah. Um, so, so the loss of data is something often that is downplayed, I think. Um, just, I don't know if it's from a marketing standpoint or just driven what what the IT managers are driven to think uptime 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 but data loss is often the more important thing to protect against rather than uptime yeah i suppose i mean in that case i suppose it depends on the industry but yeah it's it's a very critical thing the one of the things i've found also is that when you whenever i've had some sort of really bad situation that you sort of come in the door to the I also have another rule that tells me that any copy of the data that we've got right now is gold, no matter how bad it is, <laughs> and, and you never harm one of the copies that you've already got. You know, it, it's uh, right. yeah, the number of times I've seen people, the first action they try is to maybe restore over the copy of the only working database they have, you know, from some unknown piece of media, which in the end turns out not to have a valid backup on it, you know, or something. And, you know, at, 
you know, they may not have been happy with the database they had, but at least they had one. <laughs> right. And, uh, you know, things can get a lot worse from that, you know, in a big hurry. Which which makes the whole idea of, like, sitting down with a pad and paper and sort of writing that out and reminding yourself is eh, it's a little more attractive as, mm. as, as something to approach. Um, I find it particularly... My mind jumps all over the place with with thinking about different scenarios or going ahead of myself and what am I going to be doing not not step you know two I'm thinking step five step six and I if I let myself do that shotgun approach I will invariably make a mistake I know that from experience yeah so you know that kind of thing I think is very important and underrated uh, the importance of even if you have a, have a plan in front of you, what, when was the last time that plan was updated? Is it accurate? Is it even, even okay, evaluate planned? You know, and then you ask somebody, well, when was the last time it was updated? Oh, last week. And that, that goes back to what you said, is that they're not often, because they've got their boss standing right next to them, they don't want to say, oh, we've never updated it ever. Yeah. Um, they, you've got to assume, you've got to assume, the worst. Yeah. You've got to assume you're alone on an island and nobody's going to help you and all the information you get is bad and you've yeah. got to figure it out. Well, if we start with the basic backup and recovery process, what are the things that you find go wrong most in relation to SQL Server and what are the most common sort of gotchas? Um, well, one of the things I think that is that goes wrong from just getting it set up. However you're going to do it, uh, I with SQL 2000 before, I was never a fan of SQL main.exe, the maintenance plan wizard. Mm-hmm. But it sort of got the job done. And for a lot of smaller shops, that was easier to work with. But that's, okay, that's fine. But they would think about it, or hopefully, well, hopefully they would think about it. But they would think of, okay, what's my backup plan? And then what's my recovery plan? And you have to think of it in one one process. I mean, often you need to start thinking about, okay, what's my recovery process? So what do I have to do? How much data can I lose? How much downtime can I have? And how much is how much am I allowed to spend with this? Now, with backup and recovery, the, the spending isn't usually an issue, but you've got to think about those things because they play into how you set up your backup plan and then how you can employ it to recover. Do you have to recover quickly? Mm-hmm. Do you have to make sure that all the data is there? That kind of thing. Um, but from a technology standpoint, if you are not you know, using the GUI or... Well, even if you're using the GUI and or using Transex SQL, one thing that so, uh, some people just aren't aware of is the SQL Server has defaults all over the place. And one of the biggest mistakes I see, and I'll get calls up from like this from a client saying, "We got the full backup we started. Can you apply the transaction logs later on?" Well, okay. And I log in to see that they've done the command restore database from whatever file with recovery and nothing else. 
Yeah. Well, no, they don't even leave. Oh, yeah. <laughs> because with recovery is a default. Is the default, yeah. So by default, it brings it online, and, oh, i got to start over and re-restore that full backup. Mm. Even the GUI, that stuff is hidden on, not hidden, but it is on an option screen, and the default is there. Yeah. It's to recover the database. So if you're sort of a, a neophyte or you've been you've been sort of sucked into the job, it's very easy to do that kind of thing where you're falling into that default. And that's the biggest one um, is having that database restore or recover yeah. itself. At, at least it's not tragic. It just delays because you've got to do it again. Yeah, but, but it's very, very frustrating. I, I think if I look at um, the, the biggest problems I see, it tends to be where the DBAs tend to sort of abrogate their responsibility for backup to the IT folk, and the yeah. IT folk do not understand what's required. Uh, the, yeah. the number of times I see people who have, for example, just an MDF file that's been copied off a live system and go, yeah, well, I've got the database, you know, is just breathtaking. Yes. It is. It, it is amazing, um, and that particular that particular default. And there are there are probably you know hundreds of them that would make me you know just red in the face mad that it's a default. But that particular one, one thing that I train myself, I train my staff, I train every client that I have is. When you're writing that statement, before you even put in the file, put in the clause with no recovery, yeah. always. And I even go to the extent of when I'm done, I still don't recover the database. Yeah. I stop, look at it, and you. something that not a lot of people know is you can, the database will just say loading, and you can just say restore database, with recovery. Yeah, database no database name with recovery. And, yeah. Yeah, and it just it just recovers the database. Yeah. Uh as something, you know, as simple as that of just getting in the habit of that can make can really make a huge difference on how successful you are. Is and there any back to going Is there any GUI ahead. option for doing that? It's something that I was yeah, writing a set is. of instructions the other day for someone and the only thing I couldn't work out how to do in the GUI was just to do recovery on a database without or actually restoring a transaction log. Without restoring the transaction log. Hmm. Um, I mean, I could do it with no, a command. That will only, you're correct, that you can only do that in the transact, in transact SQL because you would have to not specify a file yeah, and they yeah, won't let you go to the next screen file. without a file. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Which, which is another default behavior that I just hate is the, and it's still there in 2005. Actually, these exist in 2005 still. Um, all these things were the, the hidden, the hidden GUI with automatically recovering the, with recovery being the default. Another one that I hate is the, the screen where you put in files to restore, I don't know how many times I've seen that full of files 
yeah. and someone says, oh, I'll just restore from this one, and they select it. And then I point out, no, that's not the, it's striping amongst all yes, the files. That's, that's, a, that's a classic. The number of times, yeah, people go in, there's already an entry there, they go to add one, and, and they end up striping the backup across the files. Yes, that's really common. You're quite right. Yes. Right. With no, no idea that that's, there's an, and there's no visual idea that that's actually happening. Yeah. And that's something you actually have to know. Um, that's a very, yeah, unfortunately a very common problem. And because they think they're separate backups, they delete old backups. Yeah, I think that's uh, one of my that, things to add to the Connect site. There'll be a few of those I think we should uh, probably put up there and say, look, yeah, I think before it starts a striped backup in the GUI, I have a feeling it should warn you of what's going on. Or yeah, it, it at least have, you know, name the thing, you know, more than, you know, if more than one of five, you know, put something visually on the screen if more than one file or you're adding another file that means it's a stripe backup to use that what yeah. you want to do yeah there there needs to be something there particularly um, if the files weren't in the same folder yes <laughs> that would almost yes. never be correct <laughs> yes absolutely and yeah if someone's fallen into that trap you're almost 100% guaranteed that all those files will not be there yeah uh yeah that that would i would i would forgo that i would even forgo the striping thing and if i had to do a backup and restore i'd move maybe to a file level backup rather than doing that just for portability um rather than stripe it because lots of things it's going to take longer and there are more variables and something could go wrong uh probably paranoid on my part but that's kind of who i am Actually, the other the other one that I've seen that causes a lot of problems have been backup jobs that don't run. People aren't aware they haven't been running, and the IT yeah. folk are endlessly backing up some old backup from months ago every single time yeah. they do a backup. Yes, um, and that's particularly either well, SQL main. If it was a maintenance plan, there would be times where the maintenance plan might, you know, more or less, the, or the the agent might more or less think that it's gone successfully and something didn't run. Or what's now ubiquitous from, oh, no, I don't know how long, three years ago, three or four years ago, there was a um, vulnerability that was out there with the messenger service. And... The there would you'd go to a website there'd be a pop up and the pop up would say, oh your system's at risk. Did your CD drive just open and your drive would open? And it was with a messenger service. So uh, every organization that I run into now that's disabled. So you can't send instant messages. We and I have have an operator. And with 2000, if you relied on SQL Mail. Well, SQL Mail has, for any, anybody that's actually dealt with it, it has its challenges and may not work, and you may not be notified. Yeah. Or you get the thing where it's like, okay, I've set it up, I've set it up, someone else, you go and monitor it. And that person might not really be monitoring it. Um, it's, especially if there's lots of databases, it's easy to miss 
one particular one. That might be the key database. Yes, that that's that happens unfortunately all too often. All too often. Well, that's probably a good point. We'll take a break and then we'll come back and talk about mitigation processes and uh, how we can avoid the disasters in the first place. Sounds good. As well as community resources such as this podcast, SQL Down Under offer mentoring services and both private and public training options. If you need to get your project back on track, or if you need to get it off to a good start, why not give us a call? We have also recently introduced a series of online courses available in both Asia-Pacific and US-UK time zones. In particular, the first course that's offered in this series is Query Performance Tuning. You'll find details at www.sqldownunder.com. Welcome back from the break. So maybe first up, James, just anything uh, you can tell us about uh, where you live and uh, and anything else, I suppose, sports or hobbies or what else are you into? Well, given my um, demands my time with work, it's hard for me to have hobbies anymore, but mm-hmm. um, I, I do still do have still have some. I live in um, uh, Wisconsin, Yep. then Madison, Wisconsin, and the problem we have in Wisconsin, as Minnesota has, is that Canada has done nothing to stop the Arctic air from blowing down during the winter, <laughs> so it will get very, very cold. Now, I am allowed to say that because I am a first-generation American-Canadian, basically. Uh, yes. uh, my father immigrated from Canada. Otherwise, that would be a little, you know, a, yeah. a, li- a little rude. But, um, yeah, that's that's the thing. And I think it's just a wall, you know, a simple wall or, you know, maybe <laughs> some sort of mesh fence to slow it down. But, no, it whips across those plains of Saskatchewan. It's just... By the time it hits us, it's uh, built up some steam, so we get not just cold, um, well below you know zero Celsius, but then with a wind chill factor, becomes at times dangerous to walk outside for more than five minutes. Yeah. Um, yeah. It, it, interesting place to live. The only, the only natural disaster. You know, well, other than potentially freezing to death walking to get the mail, um, the only other natural disaster are tornadoes. But otherwise, it's it's a wonderful place to live. It's a nice, nice community that's that's really sort of cosmopolitan yet small. Mm-hmm. Um, really enjoy it there. I, re- yeah. I really enjoy where I live. Um, so when you're not working, not- what? What 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 is your what's your passion outside work? Um, uh, well, I'm ashamed <laughs> to admit it, but I am a um, PC gamer. So oh, okay. Or, I'm a gamer, so yes, I'm the you know building the the super cooled rigs and everything. Although <laughs> I had to cancel all of my online game accounts because they were consuming. So much of my time that, um, yeah, my wife wasn't really happy with that. <laughs> um, but th- I have to admit that's one of my, uh, one of my, uh, I don't know, 
guilty pleasures. Yeah. Uh, the, the I must admit I tend I to avoid them because I know I could get immersed and I'm uh, well, well, determined not don't, to. Don't, don't get started. Don't. <laughs> yeah, once you get started, it's a dangerous, slippery slope, and it's an it's one that will bring you nothing but trouble. Yeah. Uh, it's fun at the time, but oh yeah, no, it's not not worth. Um, the other thing that I'd love to do is just go to coffee shops. And actually, this is interesting. Um, we might not be number one, but we're in the top three. Madison, Wisconsin has the highest ratio of restaurants to people wow. out of any city in the United States. Um, it's because the population's actually only like 2,000, but any given work day, there could be half a million, three-quarter of a million people in the city itself. Do you think that's a function so, of the weather being so cold that you tend to uh, have so many indoor things and, and maybe coffee shops and restaurants is just an extension of that? Mm, no, I, th I, I think um, I think it's just that there's so there ends, ends up being so many people there given, you know, during the week that they sort of spring up and to the point of having where a restaurant that has like, you know, maybe five tables yeah. and you're wondering like, how can you be profitable? Uh, but I love to go to coffee shops and like I mentioned, I think I mentioned I have a background in philosophy. I was actually a PhD candidate there mm -hmm. at the UW, at uh, University of Wisconsin-Madison and I love to argue, yeah. period. Um, you know, in a, re in, a, in a real argument, not the shouting, throwing coffee at <laughs> each other, but the real. Okay, let's build a, you know, build an argument, build a, build a, uh, you know, some sort of argument as to, you know, what, why this is, and then the other person attacks yours and you attack theirs, and I'm, I just can't get enough of that, and yeah. I wish I could do more of it. Unfortunately, so not like the I, Monty, I the Monty Python like, skit about arguing. Oh yeah, the, the arguments. Well, that brings to the argument that brings to mind the argument sketch of you know this is this isn't an argument. This is just contradiction. Yes, it is. No, it isn't. Yes, it is. No, it isn't. Isn't it? But then there's also one um, where they it's somebody going down to um, I, I forget what the university is, but in Australia. Hmm. And the philosophy department is Bruce, Bruce, and Bruce. Yes, yes, and it's the Bruce sketch. It's yes, the yes, University Bruce. of Wollamaloo. <laughs> yes, that was, yeah, yeah. And it's, it's Bruce here is in charge of Aristotelian philosophy. I'm in charge of uh, existential philosophy, and Bruce here is in charge of the sheep dip. Yeah, yeah there was one and, guy and that was existential was, philosophy and the sheep dip. Yeah, that's great. And the sheep dip, yes, <laughs> yes. And all they would do is just they just drink beer, you know, incessantly and and toast Australia. That would be yeah. They had they, they had the, the the famous little line with the this is the wattle, the emblem of our land. You can put it in a bottle or hold it in your hand. Amen. And then they drink. Yeah, that's classic. But anyway, so given the fact that you live in an area where you don't have too many natural disasters, uh, I suppose living in an area where or having your systems situated somewhere that you don't have natural disasters is a good start. But in terms of other mitigation uh, ideas, things that we have built into SQL Server 
that help us with that. So I suppose the most widely implemented is clustering. Yes, definitely the most widely implemented and I think the most least effective. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a day when servers were unpredictable. Um, you could still have the, you know, usually with a with any piece of, you know, major hardware, if there's some sort of defect, you're going to know in 30 days. So you do some sort of 30-day burn-in and we'd be fine. In fact, so a lot of times you'll get it, get them now after a burn-in. But today, the servers that you get, even the commodity servers, they're solid. They're pretty solid servers. And the support that you can get, the response time is very, very quick. So the problem, what clustering will will sort of mitigate is hardware problem with only one piece of hardware, the server. Yeah. If there's a problem with the shared storage, you're out of luck. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, it's very limited in what it mitigates, mm-hmm. but it's still, you know, ubiquitous and it definitely if you can, if you can afford it, um, it's one of those things that if you can afford it, definitely why not? Because it is some level of protection. Uh, but it isn't, it isn't nearly as needed as it once was. I would say yeah. five years ago, that would have been much different. I, I would have a totally different answer to that. But today, not so much. Yeah. Um, which I'm sure every hardware clustering vendor would be, you know, love to hear me say that. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I, yeah, I'm already, I'm already seeing emails coming in, you know, with, yeah, you know, sort of, death threats and they're sort of written out in, you know, newspaper letters that have been yeah. cut out and, you know, <laughs> yes, that, that kind of thing. But so, I mean, clustering, um, yes, only really helps in the situation where we have failure of one of the server's uh, bits of hardware and detectable failure and uh, effectively, as you're saying, if we've got a shared disk subsystem, which we have to have, if there's a failure in amongst that, it has to be sufficiently redundant enough by itself to uh, be resilient enough to uh, resilient enough to be able to avoid the problems. But the, I mean, the next step is to try and get the data off-site, and I'm, I'm basically log shipping was the, again the most common scenario there. But if I looked at uh, SQL Server Enterprise Edition in 2000. One of the key reasons that people bought Enterprise Edition was that they wanted to do clustering. Uh, it's worth noting that Standard Edition in 2005 supports two-node clustering, and that has released a lot of reasons why people were buying Enterprise Edition. However, I think now there are even better reasons for buying Enterprise Edition, and in an upcoming podcast, uh, we've got Lara Rebelke is going to come on and talk about uh, the, the differences in the different editions and specifically why Enterprise Edition now matters. But the other one that was part of Enterprise Edition was log shipping. Um, and again, when I looked at it effectively, it was the sort of thing you could have done yourself with a little bit of effort, but the log shipping infrastructure certainly helped. I mean, it was effectively just backing up transaction logs, copying them and restoring them on another system. With yeah, with um, 2000 Enterprise Edition you're referring to. Yeah, correct. Yes. Yeah, 
Uh, and and the lovely again, my friend that carried it out was SQLMain.exe, the yep. maintenance plan. Yeah, in fact, that, that is worth noting as well, is that that's right, in 2000 you set that up via the database maintenance plan wizard, and fortunately in 2005 they've moved that into the database properties window. The database properties window, it's supported um, further down. I'm, I actually believe it even goes down to the workgroup level. Yep. And it's the... The actual work is done after you've configured it. It's done by stored procedures. Yes. Rather than, you know, a black box EXE, which is the kind of thing that scared me. Yeah. But you're right. It's one thing you write about is with previous versions is it is something that you can set up. Um, you can, I, I remember I work in the SQL world too, or the SQL world too, the Oracle world as well. Um, I remember going on back on Oracle 734 and they set up log shipping manually. It is really a manual process that you're just automating. Yeah. Back up a log, have another server that is in no recovery mode. <laughs> you're going to make sure yeah. that you restore each log in with no recovery, but copy it over there and restore it. Uh, well, another thing that I like about that um over using something like replication to get a standby server is I know exactly the state of that server. Yeah. I know exactly how much data is there. I know how much is lost. Whereas if I'm using merge, it's not it. Well, for one thing, if I'm using merge replication, there's no way I can know that because it, it doesn't handle things transactionally. There's no transactional guarantee. And transactional replication would be, you could figure that out, but it would take a little digging into the the distribution database and a little yeah. harder work. I really like the simplicity of it. Um, the Another thing within 2005, in the GUI itself, in the database properties window, you can specify a l number of locations. Yeah. So you can have multiple standbys in anywhere. Yeah. Um, yeah, it lets you, you know, set up I multiple could, second I could back one up to your site. Yeah. Yeah. I could back one up to you, you know, to your house. Put up a server for me, right? And then I'll back another up thing I, stuff. Another thing I quite like with the configuration of the secondary too in the GUI is it does give you the option to put a delay uh, in there on restoring the logs. And of course, yes. the, yeah. Yeah, it, it's it's a very that's one of the one of the things that I, I really like within the GUI because it is one of those things that scares people a little bit with the number when you say well first you have to do this then you have to do this then you have to do this and you know for those that aren't familiar with it or you know know that you know, okay I've got to figure out how I'm going to copy it over there and. Do I have to FTP it because it's on a different network? And wait a minute, I don't understand how that works. Um, it, it makes it much, much more approachable. And from a mitigation standpoint, that to me is, you know, if you're not doing it, I, uh, why are you not doing it? Mm. Um, because as long as you, unless it's, of course, a huge, huge, huge database, in which case you probably have 
other options that are um, more robust than log shipping, but mm. it's so it 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 eliminates it eliminates um, definitely any kind of environment there. Yeah. So um, in my case, if I have a server in Wisconsin, if we get hit by a tornado and that server gets embedded into a tree, mm. um, I, if I'm moving it off to a different location, say, I don't know, Australia, yeah. there we go. I'll, I'll move it down there. Um, I, I, it's completely protected against that, or if the server room overheats, or that thing. And hardware, if that specific hardware dies, or the media dies, um, even something like a processor user error, if you can catch it quickly, you can stop, you know, whatever your interval is, 15 minutes, but you could stop it and have it not restore that particular problem. Yeah, well, that's one of the reasons I was mentioning that delay. You can now manually configure that. So you can yeah. say, look, at the other site, you know, stay two hours behind or something. And that does allow you to then have additional options, you know, should somebody do something a bit tragic, uh, you know, rather than having to go back to square one and starting restores, having another copy of the database that's fairly recent, but not completely up-to-date is useful. Uh, the only thing is, it's probably worth mentioning that that's one of the few places that I've found the with standby option useful um, yeah. compared to the with no recovery. Um, with standby, I mean, allows you to have a read-only copy of the, uh, the database that's in restoring mode, but I've not really found that terribly useful apart from the scenario where I've got a delayed thing and I want to read some data out of it before that occurred before the the, the problem occurred. One thing I've found is somebody can sort of do double duty with it is you know, you've got a central office and satellite offices and they it's a relatively small database uh, and. We, everybody else wants to report off of it, but you're the only ones at the central office who want to write to it. You could create, you've got standbys all over the place, and they're readable. Now, that's probably more hardware required at the satellite offices than um, is necessary or space. Um, but it, it yeah. is an option that you have where um, they're, are other options, other other technologies that are available to us in SQL Server yeah. where you don't have that option to read it directly. Um, well, one of the, I think one of the problems I've had with trying to use it as a, a a reporting server, the standby one, is usually the a kind of a clash between trying to run really long running reports and actually restoring the logs. Yes, Th that is the. That is because once you're restoring the logs, you got to kick everybody out while it's doing it. Yeah, and um, so if you have the logs restoring every couple of minutes, for example, th then you've got you know the the number of situations where you can actually use it as a reporting server is is you know hardly worth mentioning. Good point. That, that's a good point. I have seen it used that way, um, but. The yeah, but the 
that's definitely some overhead that they would have to the local offices have to do and they they would do that they would sort of sort of pause things while somebody's running a report yeah. um, I suppose look that leads us into leads us into snapshots anyway of course which are the uh, another option for you know, basically having something to report against that it uh, isn't a moving target um, off the live database and thoughts on database snapshots or well the other thing we can use those for of course is for recovering data um, again the same problem if we created periodic snapshots we could get a view of the data before the problem happened and you know maybe with a bit of T SQL commands we could fix the problem true yeah the, having that point in time view of a database um, is a that's one of to me if there's crowning jewels that's maybe one of them on 2005 yeah. is a database snapshot uh, especially the way that they're constructed, they take up very little space to start yeah. with, um, and they they you know they're only going to increase as things change. And you do get that point in time view of it. And given well, given some users, most user scenarios, you can sort of figure out what might have changed, although. There are scenarios where it can be extremely difficult. The one with the person that says, I deleted something, but I'm not sure what I deleted. Yeah. And having to compare the two databases, it can be a very lengthy process. And it sure helps, though, with the huge database where somebody says, I've, I've accidentally dropped this table, and right. being able to go back and pull the table back out. Now it's just great. Right. Yeah, and in... And in and it, a big improvement over what we used to have to do is to sort of restore the whole database from a backup and yeah. hopefully find what we need to in there. Yeah. Uh, you, know, the, you know, that was just wasn't practical. Yeah. Uh, no, that's great. That I, another thing I love about database snapshots, and this is a, maybe it's just me that loves it because I need it. <laughs> um, the idea of a processor I described before where it is either a planned or an automated activity that could go wrong. Yeah. Uh, anytime I'm doing an update to database code or tables or anything like that, I take a snapshot right before. Yes. It, it, and this is Enterprise Edition. So, yep. I mean, that's one of the big, big pluses for Enterprise Edition. But yeah. having that from an administrative standpoint is is gold to me. Yeah. Um, and because it's because, we, to, because we can do restore yeah. database from snapshot. Yeah. Right. And that's extremely quick as well. I mean, yeah. if my, if my maintenance window is very small and my process takes up most of that time and I need to, oh, I need to get that back to where it was because yeah. it didn't work. Um, yeah, you can restore back from the snapshot. Um, I usually refer yeah. to it as snapping back. Yeah, I, I, the, well. the other thing I find that, of course, incredibly useful for is enabling unit testing because doing unit tests on databases has always been very, very difficult and uh, getting the database into a known state before every test is very hard. So being able to create a snapshot, run it, do some work, check the results, restore from snapshot, it's just beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, 
De- definitely, and in the environment, just all all levels in the environment as well. I want yeah. you know, maybe where it's, it's sort of a, a sandbox mode where somebody's sort of just trying out you know yeah. the level where. We're, you know, we're not even really developing the application, but they're testing out different techniques yeah. that they might use and to put it back to where it was. Yeah, it, yeah I see people try and do it, it with nested transactions and things, but it's just it's not the same. I mean, a snapshot is just wonderful for that. Yeah. Um, of course, the other one I use it for extensively is end-of-period reporting. I, I endlessly see people get to the end of a period then often want to do a huge amount of reporting before the next morning when people start using the, the system again and being able to just take a snapshot and then run all the reports against that you know, while people continue using it is just wonderful. Yeah, it, it yeah. definitely is. And another scenario that I've unfortunately run into is someone that has a database that really should have a audit functionality of some kind on certain tables yep. but doesn't. And so they'll go from week to week, and somebody's sales might change and historically change, and they don't know who, you know, that's very difficult to tell exactly what's going on or is that accurate. And being able to just, okay, let's run a snapshot uh, once a night and yeah. and keep them. What about, uh, what about mirroring? How do you think that fits? Mirroring, uh, again, I think is... You know, like a crowning drool, if there is yes. one. Uh, I, I think you know both database mirroring and database snapshots have have their problems, but they're they're definitely fixable and they will be fixable. That's the one thing. This is why I focus with SQL Server um, with Microsoft products. You know, if it's not exactly right the first time, they'll get it right. Yeah. It's just a matter of time. Um, mirroring, I. I love, but people often overestimate the capabilities. Uh, I have seen people try to do a mirroring session between um, a place in Wisconsin and China and have it be synchronous through a VPN tunnel, Mm. basically. And they wonder why it's so slow for them to even enter something locally. Yeah. Well, it's synchronous. It's a two-phase commit. Yeah. Uh, but the having the you know having that automated failover and being able to place it, you've got a separate copy of the data, so it's sort of like log shipping on steroids a bit. Mm-hmm. But if you're clever enough as a developer and you're using the SQL Native Access client, you can actually capture that error saying, "Oh, the principal wasn't available." Yeah. And seamlessly repoint that client to the mirror, so that whole idea of the perception of availability is there, yeah. even if you've lost one server. And it yeah. may be a little slower, given the distance or something like that. But there's there are things like that that I, I really can make it uh, make it almost a must for certain organizations. Uh, where you know if you don't if you don't have that or if you don't have the funds to do geolocated um, you know automatically synchronizing sands and mm-hmm. had, having huge budgets or just throwing well and throwing hardware at a problem there are other ways to do it mm-hmm. uh, mirroring is the one 
Um, yeah. And especially from a user expense, a user experience, yeah. Well, as a, as a final thing, what's your feeling on, uh, I think you call it selling disaster recovery planning? Yeah, well, this is, I mentioned it at the beginning. I mean, you can't cost justify it to yeah. the financial person because then you're just working as a sort of in the actuarian and saying, well, if this happened and if this happened, and then they want, you know, uh, what's your yeah. probability? Well, maybe someone in, unfortunately, in New York in the World Trade Center, knowing that both towers would be hit, uh, yeah. that would, you know, how would you, how can you predict that? Yeah. Or in New Orleans, having the levee actually break, mm. not just you know flooding and having a, being hit by a big storm, but the levee actually broke. Um, which, if you've ever been to New Orleans, it's, it looks like you're in a fishbowl. Yeah. You look up and you see the sea. It's it's mm. it's kind of unnerving um, at times. But you can't. How do you predict that? So, what you have to do is what I. What I sort of stress is you have to approach it and treat it like it's an everyday job. Mm. This is part of the DBA's responsibility, and it should be a daily responsibility, um, daily checking the tapes, every, every once in so, every so often reviewing what you're doing. Um, it's a responsibility of the DBA to make sure that the business unit understands the implications of whatever it is you're doing yeah uh, I, that's often uh, you know often lost yeah but it just needs to be standard act- planning that's right yeah oh nothing special yeah yeah the, what some of the things are you know you could go well if we don't do this something you know something horrible like might happen i saw um some colleagues sort of use that approach to sell, you know, sell specific products or something yeah. after Katrina, after 9-11. And I, I think that that will fail. I, that will yeah, the doomsday, create a doomsday negative approach and not be yeah. effective. Yeah. yeah. Um, I, the scare approach doesn't, the doomsayer kind of thing doesn't, yeah. it doesn't help. It's not going to get them to where they need to be. Yeah. Uh, another thing to sell it is to... Not go in and say we need geolocating sands and start very slow. And in most cases, you don't need to request something new. You're going to yeah. discover all sorts of little things that you could have done. Um, maybe okay, you don't. You're not storing tapes off site. Well, rather than paying somebody else to do it, if you put, if you carry it in your hand, you know, out the door, if that's a capability, it's something. Yeah. That's right. Um, not having, you know, just. Taking things in nice, small steps and demonstrating that, and then then when you need to move to the next level, then you can approach things and say, these are the things that we've been doing to try to do these things, to try to protect against these things yeah. to begin with. And there are certain scenarios where, you know, we'd also like to protect against this. Mm-hmm. It, it's usually it's usually more effective when it comes from the the bottom going up rather than the top coming down. 
Yeah. Um, so that, you know, the top, we're, we're, we're putting a DR plan. Anytime I hear DR, I'm always worried because that means big money. Um, yeah. that kind of thing. Look, that probably brings us to about time actually. And, uh, what I was going to say is, uh, where will we see you or what have you got coming up in your world? Um, definitely be speaking at pass in mm-hmm. September. In Denver. Um, yes. In Denver. Yes. I will definitely be there. And if you want to argue with anybody, that's a good place to find me. Um, I'll probably be speaking at DevTeach in DevTeach slash SQL Teach in Vancouver in November. Mm-hmm. Um, and possibly a couple of others, but those are the two that I know about for sure at the moment. Um, otherwise, you'll just see me sort of in an airport just running by and saying, <laughs> hey, I don't have time to talk to you again. Goodbye. <laughs> Uh, that's that's been my life lately, uh, unfortunately, and yeah. um, I'd, I'd like to change it a little bit, but this is what I'm doing, and yeah. I, I like what I'm doing, and that's if great. that's what I have to do, that's what I'm going to do. Well, listen, thank you so much for your time today, James, and I will see you in September. Yes, I look forward to it. <laughs> that's great.